0: Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas. As
1: we often talk about on this show, Vegas has a storied history. And a lot of that history happened at the Sands, the hotel famous for entertainment like the Rat Pack and for world-class gambling. Today, you'll meet the author and Las Vegas expert, dr david schwartz author of a book called at the sands also on today's show you'll hear from your vegas insider scott robin of vitalvegas.com discussing the popularity of residencies in the second half hour once again vegas never sleeps presents Sports Rockin' Tours. The show, as you know, is about great storytellers. And today, you're going to hear one of the very best. Longtime sports writer for Time Magazine and sports columnist at the Washington Post, Tom Callahan, joins us for the first of two interviews. But first, let's go back in time when couples wore their best for a night out on the town in Vegas.
2: Let all the others fight and fuss. Whatever
1: happens,
0: we've
1: got us. Las Vegas is a town that removes things when the time is over. Implosions are usually met with celebration and excitement, but there was one exception for the old-timers in Las Vegas, and that's when the sands imploded. Yeah, everybody kind of went, ugh. And that's because that place has such a great history, and David Schwartz has written a great new book. It's called At the Sands, The Casino That Shaped Classic Las Vegas, Brought the Rat Pack Together, and Went Out With a Bang. And you probably know David Schwartz. He knows more about Vegas history than I think anybody does. He directs the Center for Gaming Research over at UNLV and has written some great books about gambling, and we'll tell you about those at the end of the interview. But David, the Sands really was something special. I mean, even for hotels on the Strip that have been special, it was super special.
3: You know, the Sands was, uh, like I said, in the hook title, the place where the Rat Pack came together. I think the Sands, more than any other place, epitomized classic Vegas. You know, when you think of Vegas, when you think of the old days, odds are you're thinking of the Sands.
1: Everybody's seen that great picture with Frank Dean and Sammy with the sign over overhead. And mm-hmm. I, I, like you say, I think that just is classic Vegas and one that p- people want to remember. But let's talk about its beginning. It goes back to 1952 and – uh as was a lot of Vegas at that time, the underworld was certainly involved. Oh,
3: for sure. And it's really interesting because it actually had this prehistory. Before it was the Sands, there was a little restaurant and nightclub there called LaRue, which was opened by Billy Wilkerson, who was, some Vegas fans might recognize that name. He, of course, was the guy who came up for the original idea for the Flamingo. And through... The wisdom of having Ben Siegel as a business partner, I use the word wisdom maybe a little bit sarcastically there, <laughs> ended up out of that project, and he came, you know, and so most people know that, you know, yeah, that was it for him in Vegas. He actually came back three years later, four years later with LaRue, and was trying to basically start over there, and that went really badly.
1: Yes, so much so that he's there, right? <laughs>
3: sort yeah, of. Yeah, and it closed, it closed really quickly. Within about six months, it was it closed. So that dream evaporated, and then people started saying, well, what if we built something else there? A guy named Mac Cufferman from Palm Springs, originally a liquor distributor in New Jersey, got involved and had plans to build an expansion of LaRue, but ran into licensing trouble because apparently they didn't like that He was good friends with a guy named Doc Staker, who was a lesser-known-today person in the mob, but at the time was pretty notorious. You know, I kind of would describe him as Meyer Lansky with a lower profile.
1: Lansky was involved in this too, right?
3: He was. I mean, pretty much, and it's hard to say because it's not like they had drew up articles of incorporation, but it seems like there was money from there, probably Frank Costello, Definitely from Lansky, definitely from Staker, and they all sort of had their interests and there was a bunch of different people in the casino, you know, looking after their interests. So definitely there was a couple different groups or families, if you want to call them that, involved in the Sands.
1: Well, in the early 50s, of course, there were places up and down the Strip and as well as downtown. What made the Sands so different?
3: I think the thing that made the Sands different was the entertainment and also the publicity. You know, entertainment starts with Jack and Trotter. He had been the general manager of the Copa Cabana in New York. Of course, Frank Costello, the mob boss, secretly owned a big share of that. So there were no strangers there. Came out to Las Vegas to be the vice president of entertainment at the Sands. Ran the Copa Room. Of course, that's no secret. That's where the name Copa came from. And was really good at making the Sands the place you wanted to be. If you were an entertainer, you wanted to perform the Sands. Even if it might not pay as much as some of the other places, the fact that you had played the Sands, the fact that you had been at the Copa with Jack and Trotter, meant you could go to other nightclubs around the country and get more money. Basically, it would raise your profile a lot. So it was, you know, one of the things that entertainers wanted to do would be at the Sands, and that was, I think, contributed to the mystique of the hotel. And, of course, the public relations part, too, they put a lot of work into this and just selling the fact that, hey, Sands is fun. You're going to have a great
1: time here. And it was great, really, for all of Las Vegas, right? Because this, this was became a mecca. And even if you didn't stay there, you were going to visit there. And that was kind of the Cadillac of the uh, cars that were sitting out in the lot at that time.
3: It really was. You know, when you look at Vegas at the time, I think the Sands and the Desert Inn were the two, I guess you could call them high-end places. You know, the casinos were a lot closer To each other then in that regard, it wasn't like today where you've got Bellagio at one end and Circus Circus at the other. I think they were a lot closer, although there definitely was a hierarchy. But yeah, the Sands, if you could, you know, if you, I'll put it this way, you know, up until Caesars Palace opened, probably the hardest casino to get into, to get a room at on New Year's Eve, was the Sands.
1: Really? Now, talk a little about the rooms. Were they different? Because at that time, they didn't have these Big, huge towers or anything like that. They were more resorts and sort of things. Was was the sands, along with the entertainment and the gambling, was the uh, accommodation special as well?
3: Well, originally they had all the low-rise rooms. It was one and two-story buildings, and there was they went back pretty far. It's pretty far away from the main building with the casino in it, and they were similar to other places in some regards. I think what they did was it was. A little bit more spread out and it didn't feel quite as cramped so I think people felt that real resort atmosphere there like it was some someplace special so I think they did a good job of that and the rooms themselves weren't you know if we go back and look at pictures of them they don't really look exceptional by what we'd expect today but I think it was good for those customers you know yeah. when you're living in New York City and staring at inside of an office all day to come out someplace and see palm trees that's i think that's that was enough back then
1: more with gaming historian and the author of at the sands dr david schwartz in just a few moments time now for a visit with your vegas insider scott robin of vitalvegas.com we were just talking about the excitement of a set of shows in vegas today they're called residencies which scott says entertainers love it is really appealing to these acts to kind of not have to travel. Like, it really takes a toll on your body and your health. And it, and for some of these artists, having a home base or, or having this kind of place that they can settle in, do a certain number of shows. Uh, Barry, Barry Manlow actually said it. He said, I, I want to do a show a couple nights a week. I want to keep my band employed. And I don't want to have to work that hard, you know, and I think whether it's Foo Fighters, uh, Aerosmith or whoever else you're talking about, I think there are a lot of appealing things about Las Vegas. And now there's no stigma attached to it. It used to be kind of like can't play Vegas because that's where these acts go to die. Well, that's not true anymore. Thanks, Scott. Visit VitalVegas.com every day for the latest and greatest in Las Vegas and follow Scott on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi.
4: I'm Xavier Mortimer Magician. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi.
2: To re-emerge stronger and safer than ever, ask yourself these crucial questions. Should all restaurants, retailers, and venues have new safety and sanitation procedures in place? As a business owner, how can you assure your valued guests that proper protocols are being followed? How can you give your guests confidence knowing that you've prioritized their health and safety? Introducing Virus Safe Pro a revolutionary mobile technology software that provides checklists, reminders, and confirmations to help your team perform health and safety measures right on schedule. It allows you to close the information gap in the workplace by giving your employees a dedicated source of credible instructions in a timely manner, right from their mobile devices. Validate compliance with health and wellness standards, provide regular safety and health messaging, and confirm that approved protocols have been performed all in real time and an easy to read dashboard. Tracking and verifying health and safety procedures in your business has never been more important. To learn more about how VirusSafe Pro can help you reopen, visit VirusSafePro.com.
4: Hi, this is Dr. Annette of the Dr. Annette Show. We've been talking today about COVID-19 and steps you can take to possibly prevent or mitigate infection. Silver and zinc have been used for centuries as disinfectants and as antimicrobials. We're offering you this special discount to make it easier and more affordable to get these essential silver and zinc liquid mineral supplements. Visit our website at www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Once again, that's www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products, professional line not included. We are all in this together, and we can get through this. Learn more at elementalresearchinc.com and use the promo code VEGAS20.
0: These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to
1: Dr. David Schwartz writes about gambling, video games, hospitality, and history. His latest book is At the Sands.
4: Everybody loves somebody, sometime. Everybody
2: falls in
1: love. The Sands was probably the best place outside of Monte Carlo that you could go. I mean, that was really the mecca for great gambling.
3: Yeah, I mean, they, they put a lot of pride into how they cater to gamblers, and this is serious gamblers. They would treat you very well, and they would expect you to play a lot. So if you had the money to, to gamble, and if you wanted to, you would go there. It is, it's amazing at how different Las Vegas was back then compared to now. You would never have to show your ID or even give your name. They would just know you as, you know, Mr. M or Mr. G. That's all that you will be known as on the floor, and you certainly wouldn't be signing anything, you know, because, of course, this is a time when gambling was much more stigmatized and people who had positions the New York Stock Exchange wouldn't you – know, not everybody would be as tolerant as they were in Vegas, and the people in Vegas were very discreet about that.
1: Well, and the whole concept of credit was much different back then than it is now, right? You could get it, yeah. but, but you better pay it back. <laughs>
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it was, I mean, the, the threats and stuff would, were probably, that was really the last resort. If somebody was just going to be a total knucklehead and not pay, then they would resort to that. But a lot of it was their the gambler's sense of honor, where they wouldn't want people knowing that they welched on a bet. And they wouldn't want people thinking that they weren't good for it. And that was part of the pride that gamblers had back then.
1: Well, the 50s were an exciting time. 1960s is a big deal, though, and it all starts with Ocean 11. That was really, or Ocean's 11, that was really a big thing, right? Because that's where the Rat Pack, uh, at least the Vegas connection, kind of clicked.
3: Yeah, I mean, that was where it really came together. Frank wanted to make a movie with his friends. Peter Lawford bought the script, you know, had bought the concept, bought the story, and it worked in the script. and it even the script was pretty. They did a lot of improv <laughs> in that movie when they actually filmed it, but basically the idea was, hey, let's let's have fun, let's hang out, and we'll do it. So Al Freeman, who was the director of publicity, said, "Wait a second, while we have everybody here, let's bill them all. You know, we'll have all three of them—Frank Dean and Sammy—on the marquee, and people will come here and they'll see some kind of combination of all three of them." And this was really, this was the first time that it had been done. Also, another interesting note I learned researching the book is that they did not like the phrase Rat Pack at all. And actually, if you look back at the newspaper stories, they never use the word, the phrase Rat Pack. They never used those words. That pops up in the 80s. Back then, they would call them the clan.
1: Yeah, and then Lower you case. can see the...
3: Uh, with a C, not with a K. Right, a C, <laughs>
1: right, <a> K. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, and the, the thing is... I remember getting an album, you know, obviously many years afterwards of, of one of those things at the Sands and you listen to it and you can almost feel the excitement. There is an excitement there that's kind of hard to imagine for almost any other entertainment thing short of seeing Elvis or the Beatles.
3: Yeah, it was a lot more spontaneous and I think there's a lot more interplay, which is why people still react to it. You know, it wasn't Elvis comes, he does his thing, maybe he throws a couple scarves. But pretty much, you're going to get Elvis, right? And it's a big production. Rat Pack, you know, what kind of mood is Frank in? (laughs) You know, not always for the best. But you know, what kind of mood is Frank in? What's Sammy? You know, what have the papers been saying about Sammy? That's going to have a big impact on the on the show. And they also would incorporate the the other thing is the guests. It's is about 500 people at that time in the Copa, and a lot of them were big. Hollywood people and they're right there, right down front and they're going to be interacting with them. So you never know. I mean, of course, there's the famous time when Jack Kennedy back in January of 1960, when he was at the Copa room, you know, so you could pretty much have anyone there and they would be, they would incorporate that into the act.
1: Yeah, and I imagine it was something for the the regular visitor. Boy, you wanted to be a part of that. You just want to be able to tell your friends that you hung out with, with Jack Kennedy and Frank and Dean were in a good mood that night or what have you. <laughs> it, it's really, it, it's kind of an incredible magic, and it kind of spilled over to the city, right? Because Vegas kind of has that reputation. You know, all this, uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, kind of goes back to that. I
3: think it does, and I think it was, you know— Even when it wasn't part of the show, so another group of people who came to see the show more than once were the Apollo astronauts, and this was in the mid-60s when the Apollo astronauts were the biggest national heroes we had. So imagine telling people, like, yeah, we went to the show and we were sitting right across from the Apollo crew. Like, that's kind of incredible. And I don't know that you have it so much today. You know, yes, you have celebrity sightings, but it's not quite the same thing because the venues aren't as intimate. Right. And so you are not don't have that same feel.
1: But I think it's kind of interesting, too. It was sold to Sheldon Adelson. Of course, now that's the Venetian. But mm-hmm. even though it's gone, there's still a magic t- to that. I mean, the Venetian is a great it's a great location. The convention's right there. So it still has a little, you know, and it's, there's a Sands Convention Center. There's still a little magic even to the name.
3: Yeah, and I think no matter what, the sands as we knew it then was going to be gone no matter what. So even if Sheldon Adelson doesn't implode it, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think it would still be around the day just because Las Vegas had evolved so much and you couldn't have a 777 room property, it, wouldn't, it just wouldn't be viable with everything else today. So I think that, you know, it definitely makes sense that you would change it. You know, the, the era of the Rat Pack was gone at that point and it wasn't going to come back.
1: Well, and then the name has a certain marquee value. I mean, you saw what the Sahara, the SLS, coming to the Sahara, the one thing I think that people really enjoyed was that name change, and then a whole bunch of other things have gone on since then. And, yeah. and I think all that kind of shows that you can't go home again, right? I mean, somebody could buy a hotel, they could call it the Sands, and trying to recreate that magic is pretty, well, that's impossible, I guess, in these days.
3: Yeah, I mean, well, look at the Flamingo, you know, it's a big hotel, but you couldn't argue that, yeah, this is the same place that Ben Siegel opened back in 47. I mean, it's just not, you know, it doesn't, technically it's the same organization, but it's not the same building, it's not the same feel, and it just had to change so much. You know, even the Tropicana, which is a little bit less extreme, it's not quite as big, but it's very different from what it was back in the 60s. So, even the places that are still with us in name, they've evolved a lot. You know, I think maybe the one place that hasn't that has done a good job of this is circus circus because even though it's evolved and grown it kind of still has that identity
1: yeah where you get yeah. and of course
3: they still have that original casino floor the original oval part which you know they never should change that because that's still the place even though the whole resort has changed around it like when you go there you're like yep this is the place where Jay Sarno was. This is where he liked to shoot craps.
1: David Schwartz, what a pleasure having you on here. you got to get his books on gambling. There's some of the be- three books that are fantastic. Are Roll the Bones, The History of Gambling, Suburban Xanadu, The Casino Resort on the Las Vegas Strip and Beyond, and Cutting the Wire, Gaming Prohibition, and the Internet. All three fantastic. And this latest one is is my favorite of the bunch. Is At the Sands, the casino that shaped classic Las Vegas, brought the Rat Pack together, and went out with a bang. Hey, thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Thanks a million. Remember, all of our shows are archived on our website, VegasNeverSleeps.com. You can also listen on SoundCloud, iTunes, and more. Coming up, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rock and Tours. Today's conversation features one of the nation's finest sports writers and author of the new book, Gods of Play, Tom Callahan. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Manchie.
0: Vegas, here Vegas. we go! Let's go to Vegas, baby. Let's go tonight. Let's go to Vegas. They were there when history was made. Ah! Tour is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Raccoon Tours.
2: And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes!
0: LeBron James and the buzzer! The Sports Raccoon Tours dusts off the great American art of storytelling. From the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. There, courts one in the right, down the line! It may go! Go crazy, folks! Go crazy! It's a home run! Go crazy! Now, here's Stephen Maggi.
1: Welcome to Sports Rockin' Tours, a show that presents the observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half-century or so of American sports. Imagine witnessing almost every major sports event of the last 50-plus years. Tom Callahan has done just that, and he joins us today. If you like sports, you know our guest now. His name's Tom Callahan, former senior writer at Time Magazine, sports columnist over at the Washington Post, and he's written a number of great books. One of my favorites was Johnny U. He's got an incredible new book out that we're going to talk about today, Gods at Play, an eyewitness account of great moments in American sports. Well, Tom, there isn't much you haven't seen going like from about the mid-20th century on in terms of the world of sports, yet when you started... You were called kind of an accidental sports writer. How did you get that first job, and what made you think, like, wow, this might be a business I'd like?
5: Well, I was a senior at a little little college in Maryland, Mount St. Mary's College, and I got halfway through uh, my senior year and wondered what an English major does to make a living. I thought I wanted to write, so I hitchhiked into Baltimore and walked into the evening sun and asked for the city editor. And he uh, talked to me for a while, passed me to another editor, who passed me to another editor, and I ended up across the desk from Bill Tanton, the sports editor. And we talked about my time around sports, which wasn't very notable, and I'd made most of the teams but few of the plays. But I'd just been in in Akron, uh, Ohio. Mount St. Mary's was playing in in a uh, small college regional tournament that involved uh, Winston-Salem and their star Earl Monroe. So I got to talking with Tanton about Earl Monroe, and he said, "Have you seen the bullets much Tom?" I said, a little. He said, "Have you watched Don Ole?" I said, "Bill, if the bullets had this guy, Don Ole wouldn't be playing." and And I could tell he took some slight offense. Here's this punk kid from a jerkwater school <laughs> telling me that somebody I never heard of is better than Don Ole. A little while later, uh, at the draft, the bullets lost the flip of the coin. To the Pistons. The Pistons took Jimmy Walker of Providence and the Bullets took Earl Monroe. And Bill Tanton, the sports editor, walked up to uh, Gene Shue, the Bullets coach, and said, uh, I had a kid in my office the other day saying Monroe was the best player in the country. And Shue said, I think he might be. Tanton called me at Mount St. Mary's, paged me in the hallway, Said, I don't know where I'm going to put you, but you got a job. <laughs> that's great. So that's like the worst way anybody ever became a sports writer. This is 1967. I used to tell my great old friend Shirley Povich, he got his job with the Washington Post by caddying for the owner of the Washington <laughs> Post. He, he figured Ned McLean figured that Shirley was a hell of a caddy, never lost a golf ball, so it was only logical to make him the boy sports editor of the Washington Post. Well, we used to tell each other we'd never get, even get a job. You know, we'd never even get an interview to, to any paper today. But, yeah, that's how, I, that's how I kind of accidentally became a sports writer.
1: That Earl Monroe turned out to be the great player that you predicted, too. Was it kind of fun watching his career? And, uh...
5: Yeah, I knew him Of course, he takes all the credit for my career because he knows that story. and He's got it all mixed up wrong. I was actually um, with the team, but I wasn't on the team. The coach for Mount St. Mary's, great old guy named Jim Phelan. Um, who's in his 90s, he offered me a ticket to go to Akron if I would uh, serve as cannon fodder. You know, I could get a rebound. But uh, sweet guy, he was a, I'll tell you what, he, if you saw him on a small college floor, you wouldn't believe it. They had two games that weekend. They beat Akron and they beat Baldwin-Wallace, and uh, he scored 50 points both
1: nights. Yeah, he was really an incredible player, and sometimes when you think of Russell and Chamberlain and all those people, he sometimes gets forgotten, and he really shouldn't be. He was a great ball player.
5: He was. I wouldn't put him. Uh, you, you know, it's hard to put. It's hard to compare anybody, I guess, to Russell and Chamberlain of that era. I, I knew both those guys pretty well. Chamberlain better than Russell because Chamberlain was an easier guy to know. Russell was a hard guy to crack. Russell was in a car once with with uh, Frank Deford, my friend and great sports writer for the Sports Illustrated. And Frank uh, Frank was driving with Bill, and uh, all of a sudden Russell said. Too bad we can't be friends. And Frank said, "What are you talking about, Bill? Oh, I thought we were friends." He said, "Oh no, we can be friendly, but we can't be friends." You know, that's—he was a hard nut to crack, at least for me, he was. But yeah. Chamberlain was a, was a sweetheart. You know, I mean, he 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 had he had his issues, of course. He didn't really understand basketball. He would start the season, say, "I'm going to score point, more points than anybody ever did, and do it." He <laughs> averaged fifty a night. And then he'd get tired of hearing what a gunner he is, so he said, I'm going to get more assists than anybody who ever did. And he did it. He just didn't grasp that the game was all these elements. And he also didn't, it wasn't important to him to be a winner. You know, it was more important to him not to be an ogre. You know, he had grown up in Philadelphia. He had two parents who were home. He was taught to behave. You know, he was he was a very unusual black guy, and a Catholic, you know. and uh, But he... He only won two championships because he didn't force the issue. You know, the, 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 of all his great records, the, the most profound one is he never fouled out of an NBA game because if, once he had four fouls, he quit playing. He stopped. It was maddening. But,
1: um, Well, yeah, he, I mean, he was so great. And, and you bring up a good point because I was going to ask you if you thought he achieved all he could. And I guess statistically he did, but not necessarily in terms of uh, success in rings and that kind of thing.
5: No, he, he. One year they were the defending champions in L.A., and the year before they had, you know, thirty-three straight victories. They really cut a swath through the league. Now they're, now they're in the finals with the Knicks again, and um, uh, the Knicks are leading the series, and they're at the sixth game in L.A., and most of the sports writers are figuring that uh, the Lakers would win Game Six and lose Game Seven in New York. But anyway, I'm there having a cup of coffee at the fabulous forum that morning and and Will sticks his head in the door and says, Anybody who has who owes me money, have it here tonight. And I thought, <laughs> This series is over. Yeah. And and he bar- you know, he barely showed up for the sixth game and and not five minutes afterwards, he handed me a little notebook and a pen and said, Put your number down there, my volleyball team is touring in the off season. <laughs> five minutes after he lost the championship. There were, there were things missing about him. I was sitting with Pat Riley uh, in, in Tucker Frederickson's New York saloon years ago, and we were talking about why, why Wild only won two, and of course Riley played on that team with him. And Riley said, "Well, don't leave out all those little blonde women and pigtails." You know, Wild <laughs> 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 had a, Will had a he, he had a type, Kim Novak, including the real Kim Novak. Wow!
1: Yeah, and at, he, that, it, at that time, that was that was almost unheard of, right? It, it, well, it was. It
5: was. You know, I mean, Wilt, Wilt wasn't, uh, but he was a nice guy, he was a good guy. When he, when he built his fabulous house, he called it Ursa Major, you know, the Big Dipper. Mm-hmm. Uh, oddly enough, Chamberlain despised the nickname, Wilt the Stilt, but he loved the nickname, the Big Dipper. And uh, he, D- Dipper was written on all on the cuffs of all of his shirts. And, uh, but he, he invited me to a tour, his grand house that he had built, it was amazing. <laughs> During the tour, he says to a bunch of us, "We were all the kind of like the nobodies. The second wave would, would be the famous people, but the nobodies. We're we're walking around and we're seeing these incredible showers and <laughs> incredible furniture, you know. And, and I'm six two, 200 and some pounds, you know. And he he said, he said I, I was worried that my my friend Bill Shoemaker, the jockey, might feel like he's he's you know it's he's." With the giant in the beanstalk, he said, "I think the architect did a real good job of that." And I thought to myself, "Did he?" You, you know, <laughs> I felt like it was a field mouse, you know. And, and I'm, I'm wondering how, how many how many wolves' noses you know went oh, yeah. into that bread spread over his bed. He had a bed. He had a bed that looked like a hockey field, and, a, and a, 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 over his head you, he could open the roof to look at the stars.
1: We'll be back with the author of "Gods at Play, Tom Callahan, in just a moment. You're listening to Sports Rockin' Tours with Stephen Manchie. What if
6: every dollar you invested into your training program
1: Welcome back to Sports Rock and Tours. You are listening to Tom Callahan, author of God's at Play, a book that features incredible stories about great sports legends. It is not a tired collection of statistics, but instead an insight into what drives these incredible athletes.
5: Man, could he get lift up off the floor. And I was with Wilt once. I mentioned Johnny Green, and Chamberlain said to me, someday jumping Johnny Green's going to go up and nothing's going to come down but sneaker laces. When I think of Wild, I think of things like that.
1: I remember a couple things. Number one, that fight with Ali, based on what you're talking about. Was he serious at all about that? Because I, I remember He, that. he,
5: he was. Uh, he, Ali would have gone inside and, and killed him. Yeah. He would have gone inside and hurt him. But that's that was part of his ego. You know, When Ali, when that, that whole thing came up, Angelo Dundee, Got up on a chair and said, and invited Ali to hit him in the head. And, and Muhammad thought, "Uh oh, let's 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 have let's have him fight Doug Jones first. You know, he wanted to get <laughs> yeah. him another fight. Well, Chamberlain, he was only going to fight Ali. He wasn't going to fight anybody else. So the the the, the thing went away."
1: Well, Chamberlain and Russell both were really kind of intelligent guys, but like you say, I remember when Russell was coaching the Sacramento Kings, and I got to know him a little there, and it was a guy that would only give you so much. He always felt like you, 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 you took what, what he'd give you, and that was it. He, was, he wasn't going to open up to you.
5: I forgave him completely because of the way he was treated in Boston, in racist Boston. He came home one night. Someone had broken into his house and gone to the bathroom in his bed. Boston Celtics never sold out. The Thirteen years he was there and won eleven championships. They never sold out. They didn't sell out till Berg got there.
1: It's incredible.
5: You know, I mean, Boston is a is a is a town that nobody crosses anybody else's barriers. You know, and I, I understood. I tried. I couldn't crack Russell. I sat with him a couple of times to try and get him to talk. He'd answer yes, no. You know, but but I, you know, I forgave him because 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 of the circumstance and the players who played with him, of course, they were all in awe of him. I, I yeah. knew Ziggy, just very Zigfried, pretty well. He won five titles there as a guard. He was, he was an Ohio State guy, played with Havlicek. And, and Ziggy told me that when Russell was the coach, he ended up being the first black coach in any major sport, you know. And he won the last final two of his 11 championships as the player coach of the Celtics. And Zigfrieds told me, he said, he, he it practiced when he was the coach. He hardly said a word. He'd sit there and read the newspaper. He said, and then and then he'd be the last guy to to the uh garden, you know, before yeah. the game. And, and, and he and he said you could smell the woman on his beard. Wow. You know? and, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and he said but you know, we'd we'd fall behind and then he'd call timeout always and he'd say, Okay, cut the cut the cut this up, let's let's go win this game and we would. And and Siegfried told me he said, I won five championships rings with him all of them because of him, but I can't say I knew him. Can't say he knew him, you know? Wow. <laughs> he played for him and with him, but didn't know him.
1: Well, you know, when you talk about coaches in all sports, and you've seen them all, I always wonder if guys like him, like Frank Robinson, uh, maybe even Ted Williams, where they're just great players, kind of have a hard time with dealing with it, whereas guys like Billy Martin, who wasn't a great player, You're right? Can, can, is there something to that?
5: It absolutely is. A guy like Earl Weaver had a cup of coffee in the big leagues, you know. He looked around and thought, boy, couldn't these guys play. Ted Williams looked around and thought, nobody can play here. Ted Williams literally said to me once in Washington, he said, how did Eddie Brinkman ever get to the big leagues? And I said, Ted, he's your best player. (laughs) Well, you know, Kuzi was that way. I covered that team that Kuzi coached. And Kuzi look out on the floor and he'd think, can't anybody throw a pass? And I'd say, Bob, you're the only guy who ever threw that pass. Right. You know, it it, it it was it was better to be Sparky Anderson. You know, played, he had the rarest career of all. One full season in the big leagues. Walter Olsen had one at bat in the big leagues. Struck out one at bat. One. <laughs> but Sparky had a whole season in Philadelphia on a terrible Phillies team, where he was uh, he was the second baseman, and he. You know, hit two twelve, and you know he had, he yes. had almost no RBIs. You know, Joe Morgan used to say that's why Sparky hates pitchers because he couldn't hit them. But but those guys who looked around and thought, man, has there ever been a catcher like Johnny Bench? You know, or you know, but yeah. they, they were the Cooperstown Reds to Sparky. You think, man, look at this guy, look at that guy. Well, that's that's who you want to be the manager. You don't want. The world's greatest player. You don't want Ted Williams. Although the funny thing is, I got along with Williams, and he didn't like sports writers.
1: Now, why do you think that was? Because I remember that he was kind of grumpy when it came to sports writers, oh, broadcasters, man. and what have
5: you. We well, you remember how the, the, the great old players would come back at spring training in uniform. Koufax would be in thirty-two, and Al Line would be in number six, and Williams would come back to Winter Haven for the Red Sox, but he never got dressed again. You know, he didn't he never yes. suited up. He'd be sitting there in a, in a real roomy fishing shirt and he did, wouldn't even talk to the local writers but i for some reason got along with him and i think the main reason was is, is i couldn't interview him I, you know i don't think anybody could interview him but i certainly certainly i couldn't he interviewed you you know so i'd see him every year and we'd sit off in this cage while the games are going off, and and he would say things things to me like uh you're from baltimore right and i'd say uh <laughs> Yeah, Rich, uh, I was born in Chicago, but I you know, went to school in Baltimore. He said, so you must have played lacrosse instead of baseball. And I said, yeah, after Little League Baseball, everybody played lacrosse. He said, do you, do, do you know Unitas? I'd say, a little. <laughs> yeah. He said, let me ask you, if Unitas is standing over the center and the stadium bursts into flames, what does he do? I'd say he runs the play. And William said, William said, That's God given. And then he'd he'd say to me, Good to see you again, Tommy. Next year we'll talk about Chicago. (laughs) He he was like in charge of everything.
1: That has to feel good, right? Where you know that you're getting something from him that really nobody else is or a very few. Yeah, I don't even know why. You, You know, things, it's
5: such an accident. This book I've just written is full of little memories that have nothing to do with the major. Happening or the score, or anything you have little tiny memories that are unique to me. Uh, nothing in this book is something I heard it 's all stuff I was standing there for, and a lot of that was an accident. you know, like I was standing with Clementi at his final locker, and of course, we didn 't know it was fi- his final locker, but i 'm only there because the pennant was one on a, of all things a wild pitch. And all the writers went with the winners in the Cincinnati side, and so I had Clemente completely to myself. I'm just trying to avoid a champagne bath in the Reds locker room. That's why I'm with Clemente. We (laughs) sat, and I had, you know, his last locker, and that's no credit to me. It's just a complete accident. If you'll indulge me, a little story, that's typical of gods at play. Mm -hmm. The '72 World Series opened in Cincinnati. Before the second game, Jackie Robinson was on the field. He was 53, looked 73, white-headed, virtually blind from diabetes. Nine days later, he dropped dead. All the black players on the A's and the Reds, of course, they surrounded him on the field, and they they just wanted to touch him. And uh, everybody but Joe Morgan, the second baseman, and uh, he's playing catch on the side. I got kind of fascinated watching him. So now the message comes on the PA system for the non-uniformed personnel to get off the field. And Morgan walks up behind Robinson, and he doesn't say, this is Joe Morgan. He says simply, in a voice so low, I could barely hear him, thank you. Robinson says, you're welcome, without even turning around. I follow Jackie as he goes into the Reds' dugout. They led him up the ramp into into the clubhouse where he ran into Jim Murray of the L.A. Times. And Murray said, Jackie, it's Jim Murray. And Jackie said, oh, Jim, oh, Jim, I wish I could see you again. Murray said, no, Jackie, I wish we could see you again. Well, I can't tell you the score of the game that day.
1: You can hear more with Tom Callahan next week on Sports Rockin' Tours when we will discuss legends Red Smith, Al Davis, Paul Brown, Muhammad Ali, and more. In a couple of weeks, we'll even have more on an expanded podcast available soon on its very own website. We will have details about that for you very soon. In the meantime, go to the Vegas Never Sleeps website and check out the Sports Rockin' Tour page. Don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening today. This is Steven Manchin.
0: Backs it in! from Backs
2: in the three pointer!
6: Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Will, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? e learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company... Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone.
1: Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Or more at elearning.epsilonxr.com.